Hey everyone, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast for a current philosophy major, that's me, and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode seven, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. Uh, it is, uh, again, we are revealing to to listeners when we are recording, it is Easter weekend. Uh, you will hear this recording in early May, and uh, it is, uh, as you can expect on an Easter day, a lovely spring day. It's a little overcast, but all is well in, in my world. How's everything with you? It's going pretty good. I think uh, I'm in the f- final stretch, and I'm definitely beginning to feel that. So that's both exciting and very scary at the same time, because things are coming up. But uh, it's pretty good in the present. <laughs> Yes, have you counted how many weeks of school are left for you? I believe I have four weeks of school left. So, oh, holy cow, really? Yeah, I get out very early, so that's that's very nice. <laughs> I always forget how early college gets out. You guys get out like first week of May or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, our last day of class is the last day of April. So I don't know if that's normal or if that's just us, but it's, it's nice uh, because my birthday is the first week of May. Or, yeah, so get out right before my birthday. So that's, that's fun. <laughs> oh, excellent. So just, just about the time this episode will air. <laughs> <Probably>. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, being that it's, that it's Easter, there is a, there's a very important uh, thing I really wanted to talk about today. Um, while, uh, while the nature of time is transitory uh, <laughs> and we are recording this four weeks before uh, it will air and it's Easter. The thing that is eternal, of course, is candy and uh, the love of candy, or at least my love of candy. So I thought very quickly we would talk about uh, our favorite Easter candies. So <laughs> because today's episode uh, is going to be a little on the heavier side in terms of theme and topic. So uh, so a little, little lightness here at the beginning. Andrew, do you have any particular Easter candies that you that you always look forward to? You know, I was thinking about one for sure. And then the second one I realized I rarely ever get. So the first one is those Reese's peanut butter eggs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about those. So those are good. <laughs> those are those are pretty good. I remember, I think my mom always gets those for us. And I always really enjoy those. So that's always fun. And then the second one I realized I rarely ever get have you ever, I think they're called the Cadbury eggs. Is that, is that what they're called? Oh, that was on my list. Oh, no. Yes, the Cadbury eggs. <laughs> I, I realized that I only get those when I go to Kroger, uh, which is our local uh, supermart store, I guess, in the South. Uh-huh. And they have those at the checkout. And I'm always like, oh, that's such a good deal. So those are always fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so so the Cadbury eggs are top of my list. Okay. Uh, when it comes to just an incredibly luxurious candy experience, <laughs> <laughs> I love the Cadbury Cadbury so eggs. <laughs> they are so good and they're so rich. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they come in individual. They're sold individually, and, and they only need to be because they are so rich. There's no you, you'll never eat want to eat four or five in a row, for sure. Let's see. What else do I like? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I loved jelly beans. Oh. 
in fact, I really liked licorice jelly beans. Uh, my mom, i.e. the Easter Bunny, <laughs> would always have a, a plastic egg full of just licorice oh, jelly beans for me. That's so nice. I know. It's kind of, yeah, that is sweet. Uh, I don't know that I love the licorice jelly beans as much as I did when I was eight, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um you know there's always peeps yeah. uh a lot of people say they're terrible <laughs> and they kind of are um, but there's something about them that's just that's just peeptastic i don't know it, it, it takes me back it takes me back to my childhood there's the uh there's the classic uh and i think overrated chocolate bunny yeah i agree you gotta have some yeah you got there's usually it's like cheap chocolate you gotta have some <laughs> some <laughs> At my age, if you're going to eat some candy, it's got to be good because <laughs> you're going to have the calories. I think they are cool, though. <laughs> oh, they're cool. You know something that I, I just saw when I was in the store the other day? They're actually having like huge chocolate eggs. Like they, they're just huge, like the size of a, I don't know. I don't even know what they're the size of. They're just like. Like a basketball? Maybe a tiny bit smaller than that, but yeah, uh-huh. I've, I was just shocked when I saw that. <laughs> How do you even eat this? <laughs> oh man, surely those are hollow. <laughs> I hope they will. Oh, that does make me think of the giant uh, Hershey Kisses. Oh, right, 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 right. Those are solid yeah, chocolate. Those are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, disappointingly, I have no Easter candy this year. <laughs> I actually saw my mom came and visited me yesterday, which was very, very nice. And she brought me a really nice little bag of uh, some Easter candy, which was much needed and and made me feel very happy. So that was great. (laughs) Oh, that's so nice. This is one of the real disadvantages of us recording in different places, because if we were recording in the same room, (laughs) you could share some of that candy with me. (laughs) <laughs> when we're when we're able to be in person, I will. Uh, whenever that is, <laughs> even if it's in June, I will. Uh, I'll keep some. <laughs> okay, I'm looking forward to it. So I'm sure everyone's wondering, after looking at today's episode title, why are we talking about death? <laughs> um, and and that's a good question. Uh, about six months ago now, I join this discussion group where our main focus for the the reading group was talking about this book by someone named Lydia Dugdale. She's a medical doctor and professor at Columbia. She wrote this book recently called The Lost Art of Dying. And we were discussing that in the reading group and what it means to die well. Up until this point in my life, I never really had thought much about how you live impacts how you die, if that makes any sense at all. But basically, the the book is that in order to have a good death, you have to be preparing for it in your life. And one of the the ideas in the book is that nowadays it's it's very much a medically oriented book, I, I suppose. But the premise, I guess, is nowadays compared to in, in our past, uh, we're very disconnected with. Uh, death because of hospitals and and hospice care and our life-saving procedures that we're able to do. And so we're very disconnected and have this really fantastical idea of death and, and how one dies. So it might seem grim, but I think it's an important topic to discuss. Mr. Parsons, do you uh, 
how did you how did you feel when I brought up this episode to you? Well, I think it's a great idea. We we joke a lot in philosophy that you know it it, it hasn't been a philosophy class you know until we've brought up the death in one way or another. This <laughs> comes up on a daily basis in philosophy. Uh, it is an interesting topic to talk about because most of philosophy or a lot of philosophy that that we engage with is something that we can at least relate to some type of experience. And death is one of those topics that we can't. Like, n- n- no one here on this planet currently has experienced death. Uh, they might have come close to it, but no one has experienced death. And, uh, and, and so the best you can do is, you know, observe it through other, other people's interactions with it, how they've handled the passing of, of loved ones in their lives. Uh, and certainly if, if you've had someone who's close to you that has passed. Um, but as far as like direct experience, you know, uh, obviously we have none. And so in a way I feel a, a little humbled uh, to, to speak about this topic. I don't feel necessarily unqualified because, you know, everything in philosophy is a lot of it is not everything, but a lot of it is theory. And so this is theory as well. It just happens to be a theory about something that I've not really experienced. Certainly not directly. I don't know. So that, that's kind of, those were kind of some of the initial thoughts I had when you brought it up. And, you know, just, just as a matter of how this relates to your life. And that's something that this podcast is really trying to focus on how philosophy can be most practical to people. For one, everyone's going to die. It's, it's a fact of life, I guess. Uh, not I guess. It just is a fact of life that everyone will die. So, of course, it's important. Uh, it is significant. Uh, and secondly, at least, at least from my university, a lot of my friends, a lot of them want to be in the healthcare profession. Most of them want to be doctors. It's a very uh, medical pre-med school. When I was doing a lot of thinking on this topic, it was mostly with students who were either in medical school right now or um, were planning on being in medical school. So thinking about how one is prepared to die uh, is important, um, especially for those who are thinking about joining some of the healthcare profession, uh, because you are impacting how, how people experience their final days. And I don't want to say that I'll necessarily be criticizing, uh, that profession, uh, but I definitely will be. (laughs) (laughs) I I had some critical things to say about the health profession and dying well, uh, also prepared in my notes for today. So we we will see how that goes. I, I, you know, it is, it is interesting. We talk about We'd like for the podcast to be something that helps people live meaningful lives, good lives. And this topic, I mean, we're, we're not talking about the process. Well, in a way, we're talking about the process of death. Um, but but the topic, I mean, the question is, what does it mean to, to die well? And this may get our discussion going. To die well, I think, means to that you have lived well. And so it yep. becomes a question of of how does one live? Yes, we can talk about the last couple of months maybe of a person's life and dying well, but so much of that is geared by, by how someone has lived. And I guess I'll say this too, kind of up front, that there are different types of deaths, obviously. And in, in the last year, uh, certainly across the globe and in the United States, 
Uh, we have experienced a great deal of death due to COVID. There's what we might call untimely deaths and deaths by abuse or, uh, or just really all those horrible, unfortunate situations that, that are probably in your head right now. Um, but then there's also the, the death of a person who has lived what we will call the, the full extent of their life, the, the, the full arc of a, of a human experience, uh, which is, you know, from birth to, to 80-ish or more years. So I, I don't know if that like frames the conversation a little differently, um, Andrew. Yeah. You know, when, when we're talking about dying well, uh, are we talking about like every single death um, or are we talking about more so, you know, the hopes that whoever hypothetically we're speaking about uh, has lived the full extent of their life? You know, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that if we, if we, in some sense, if we think about dying and we're considering it on almost a daily basis, I mean, for ourselves, at least in some sense, if each and every one of us is thinking about death um, and, and having to live well and how that impacts our lives. Untimely deaths are impacted, sure. Uh, but on the individual basis, if you are preparing for death, that's not only going to be comforting to you. Well, I don't know if it will be, but most likely, you know, not only will you have your affairs in order and such, but you'll be considering it and perhaps living your life uh, more fully but also your family and those around you will, I think, feel a bit more comfortable. I mean, that's a, that's a rough word to use. But, but if you're preparing for something your entire, not your entire life, but if you're preparing for something and consciously thinking about it, um, getting your affairs in order in a sense, but also getting ready for that moment when you will no longer live anymore and thinking about it, I feel like that will impact how you live. But if you experience an untimely death, um, I don't think it's going to be as negative as it could have been. And I know that's not necessarily what you were asking, but I think that when we're thinking about this topic of dying well, we have to think about it on the individual basis. So at the individual, how it's impacting me or the person who died, but also how it's impacting those around them. Because I do think they are connected. We live in society. Aristotle said people are... Uh, social creatures. Yeah, I had jotted down when thinking about this topic that that dying well really involves two parties, right? It involves the person who is dying and then it involves everyone else who is who is left behind, if you will. And so a person who has lived well and died well, uh, the the people who are left behind to remember them will feel more comforted if that person has lived a, a rich and full life, no matter how long that life has been. No death is, we're not pretending here that that a death will not be traumatic, uh, no matter how the death occurs. A a death is always, is always very, very emotional uh, for for anyone who's involved, no matter how well the person has lived. But there is comfort that comes, I think, a little quicker if that person has lived a a good life. And so that's why I say like, you know, there is the one who's dying and that person will be comforted if they have lived a full good life. Uh, But then the ones who are left behind too, they will be, their their comfort will come quicker, I believe, if that person has lived a full life. Yeah. So before I, before we jump into anything else, I want to talk about one, how death looked in the past, not like methods of dying, you know, but how dying 
involved more of a community. And second, I want to just quickly go over how um, our perceptions of death have changed today, because I do think that's important. So just looking quickly, quickly back in the past, death was a part of people's lives, you know, uh, more so than it is today. It was something that the community was involved in and people consciously witnessed death. Um, I mean, if you're thinking about uh, people living in the, the medieval ages, they weren't thinking, oh, my friend is not going to spend his or her last days in the, a hospital. They're going to spend them at home around their friends, their family, the community that they probably grew up with ever since they were young. Um, you know, we were talking about stoicism last week. A big part of stoicism is thinking about death a lot. Yes. Um, I believe that maybe we talked about this before in another episode, but, you know, there was Roman generals when they would come back from their massive campaigns, when they would defeat people, uh, they would go on these huge triumphs where they would mess, like almost be seen as a god for a day. And, and right next to them in their ears, they would be having a slave whisper, hominum ti momento, which is uh, remember that you're mortal or remember you're going to die. So thinking about death and, and witnessing death was something that we would see on a daily basis. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we kind of got away from this with hospital care and things of this nature. We removed death as being something that's a community aspect. And, and now death is more of something that's very confined and very limited. If we do witness death and it's someone close to us, it's likely going to be in a hospital and in that same sense, it's going to be with only a very, very few amount of people um, and not necessarily in a comfortable environment. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to steal any future thunder from you, but I do think a lot about the way that, that our culture approaches death and, and, and even go through that, that particular process. I think about our customs here in the United States anyway, that I'm familiar with, you know, the, we generally have a funeral that lasts, you know, an hour or so. And we remember that person. And then maybe half of the people at the funeral come to the graveside. And it's like we sanitize it as much as possible to, to like, we know that they're dying. We know we're saying goodbye, but we also don't want to like, we don't want to feel it too much. I think that's very strange. You know, e- e- even at the graveside uh, burials, I've seen, I mean, obviously the casket is, uh, hanging over <laughs> over the the burial plot and, and of course that means dirt has been dug out of the ground and off to the side i've seen the dirt the pile of dirt covered with what is basically astroturf like fake grass yeah. so that we don't even think about the fact that this person's going into the ground uh, you know we cover the pile of dirt with fake grass and you know that's just our particular custom here in the united states I know that other cultures, well, who knows, maybe this goes back to our Puritan, <laughs> Puritan reserved emotional enlightenment type uh, approach to things. But I just don't feel that we, that we experience the death of someone uh, in, in, a, in a very expansive way. And I think, that's, I think that lessens, lessens us and lessens our experience. You know, something... Something that you just made me remember when you were talking about funerals is how much they are theatricized um, in a a sense. When we go to a funeral, there is a certain order of procession that takes place. Uh, There's 
maybe an MC for a, a kind of secular uh, funeral or there for for a, a religious one, there might be a priest or someone leading it. And it has a certain order and people say things at a specific time. And then there's the whole funeral procession itself where people go march or they drive in a car to the place that the funeral's taking place. And there is a there is a negative aspect about that, sure. But at a funeral, it is, in a sense, a way that the community is getting together, where the community is getting together and they are remembering someone who used to be part of their community. But what's kind of funny, I mean, it's not funny, uh, but we don't do this when people are alive, when they're on their last, uh, when they're on their deathbed. And that's something that I find almost cruel uh, because we're remembering this person when they're, when they are dead, when it's easy to, it's not easy, of course, would, but when it's convenient to remember them, but we're not often taking the time to do this or we're not able really to do this, to, to give them a good death themselves. We're not allowing them to come back and remember all the memories and such. Yeah, we're probably getting wildly off track from what you wanted to talk about. But okay, I've thought about this a lot, a lot too, as well. And, and by the way, with funerals and all of these things, by the way, an order of, of operations, if you will, in times of emotional distress, those are actually very helpful I'm not suggesting that the way that we do funerals is is necessarily wrong, uh, but perhaps the suppression of emotions, not sanitize it as much as we do. But as far as like saying goodbye to people, I've really become aware of this in the uh, in the age of social media, where when someone dies, now there's this collective outpouring for, especially if it's a famous person, this collective outpouring online. Twitter, Facebook, whatever, where all these people are saying all these wonderful things about this person who has passed. And I'm like, why aren't we telling these things to these people while they're alive? You know, how much they meant to them, the things that they did for them, the way that they inspired them. We reserve these for some reason for after people die and we just gush it, uh, you know, on social media. I don't know. I just started thinking about that one day. I'm like, so this is this is very corny, but recently there was a sequel release to Coming to America, the Eddie Murphy uh, comedy, and his dad, uh, King Joffy, uh, is about to die, and he wants to have his funeral before he's dead. And so, I mean, it's a comedy movie, so you know, keep this in mind. But it's a like they have a funeral for him while he is still alive. And like all of his friends show up and they have a party and there's dancing and there's music and there's a eulogy and all that sort of stuff. And they say, they say goodbye to him. Like, but I guess maybe in a less comedy movie way, uh, there's the book, the fault in our stars by John green. And it's about two kids with cancer and they, they know what direction that's going to go. And there is a, a, a short scene that's very touching where uh, they say goodbye to their friend who is not yet dead yet, but uh, I believe they're even in a church. And they say, it's it a very informal sort of deal, but they tell that person what they meant to them. And my gosh, like what a gift, what a gift. And, and why we reserve this for after people are gone just confounds me. You just reminded me of this story from this book, uh, The Lost Art of Dying, that I've mentioned multiple times and I will continue to. You know, there's this story in there. I believe it was when this author was a, a doctor practitioner. 
Um, but there was this woman who she, she and her husband were elderly and the husband was going through, you know, severe medical problems. Um, so for, for a few months, she and her husband would go to uh, the doctor visits, you know, together and they would, um, they were going through these things together or she was going through these things with him. And then one night she, she went home and she, she left the hospital on the night of her anniversary. And she, you know, of course, for these past five months, she was expecting that he would die. She was preparing all the legal documents, the funeral, et cetera. Um, so, so that night at the hospital, uh, when she, when she came home, the hospital called her and, and, you know, they said that, he passed away. He died. And she felt immense grief that she wasn't with there with him. Of course, she was sad, right? Um, they'd spent their entire lives together. And she, after that, she she did feel, you know, good because she had been preparing for his death. But of course, she was sad. And she was wondering, you know, what will this be like? What will my life be like after he's, you know, not after he's dead, but after I bury him? So next day she goes, and she goes to the hospital. She walks into the room, which is going to have his body. And and as she walks in, she hears her husband's voice. And, you know, he says, hello. And then uh, he's like, why haven't you came and seen me for the past few days? And she's like, I thought you I thought you were dead. You know, this is this is kind of one of these dry humor moments where <laughs> the, the hospital actually accidentally called her and told her that he was dead. Oh, um, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the hospital uh, made a mistake and, and she got to learn from her mistakes. And although she did prepare well the first time around, she knew like the feeling. She knew what was wrong. This is a very long story. Promise I'm almost done. But she knew what she did wrong the first time around. She almost had a second experience, a second going at, at his death. So when he finally did die a few months later, this is, a, this is a funny-ish quote. She said, when the hospital called to tell me Harvey died, I didn't call my son right away to tell him. First, I called my boyfriend and told him to chill the champagne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know really what the point of that story was other than to say that we think about, you know, there's these ways that we prepare for death and we often forget crucial things. We, we think about preparing for death as preparing for these funeral expenses, getting the legal paperwork in order. But we often don't think about telling these people how much we mean to them. Um, and that's something sh- that she regretted that she was able to redo the second time around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. Hey, everyone. Mr. Parsons here. We hope you're enjoying the show so far and just wanted to take a brief moment to remind you about subscribing to the show on whatever platform that you listen and giving us a positive review. It lets you know when new episodes drop and helps us grow the community around Open Door Philosophy. Also, we hope you'll join us for our next episode as we discuss non-dualistic thinking and how suffering is an important element leading to a more expansive and generous conception of others based on Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. Okay, thanks so much, and now back to the show. So Andrew, I know you wanted to talk about death in terms of of the medical industry and how we currently approach that. 
Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a lot recently, especially after I read this book. And last or a few weeks ago, we were talking about Aristotle. Uh, this is going to be a wildly intro to this. You know, Aristotle, he thinks about function. What is the role of something? So if we think about the role of a doctor, we think about them, you know, making someone healthy, right? At least I think that's what Aristotle would say. But recently now, uh, doctors, they often see their role as keeping someone alive as long as they can. And before we have angry listeners telling us this is wrong, I don't think this is necessarily wrong in the case that yeah. the medical students that I've talked to, the professors that they've I've talked to uh, through them, they, they will all admit that's their goal. Like that's their number one goal. But in some sense, we have to ask ourselves, is this the right thing to do? Uh, is it right to keep the, someone alive uh, as, as long as the, the doctor possibly can? Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not advocating at all for euthanasia uh, or, or um, assisted suicide. That's a topic of, of worms for a whole nother episode. But when we do think about doctors, there are situations where doctors will put all gusto in for keeping these people alive, even if it's not in the best interest of the patient. Yeah, I have a friend whose mother right now is, boy, 86 maybe, and she has cancer and has been fighting that for a while. And now her pacemaker needs to be replaced. And, and you just kind of got to ask yourself, like, we're going to open a person up at the age of 86 and replace a pacemaker while they're battling cancer, you know, for what a few more months or, or another year, you know, in, in the book I read about waiting for the last bus, it said, you know, we, we, we prolong death too much. Again, this is written by a guy who's in his nineties. He says, we, pro- we prolong death too much. People, people easily live into their 80s now, uh, but the medical field's focus has become on the postponement of death rather than the enhancement of life. And yeah, the, the statistics from like the National uh, Health Services Research, National Institutes of Health Study, you know, in terms of expenditures of insurance uh, in people's lives during their senior years, almost half of people's insurance That's is spent crazy. in the last 10 years of their life. And, and it becomes almost like a third of their insurance is spent just in the last few years. And as my own parents are orbiting around the age of 80, you know, they go to the doctors a lot. And, and that's good. But like you say, you know, the, it's hard to say, like, when to stop fighting, of course. But you can certainly fight too long. I don't know. You know, and I even think that sometimes doctors can mis- be very misleading to patients about their chances of survival. I believe this this is in a book or article that I recently read, but a lot of doctors now will tell patients, you know, if you don't have much of a chance of survival now, but there is this numerical drug that you can be on a trial for that could extend your life expectancy. It's like, sure. Yeah. Uh, if this drug works, that's great. You know, but would you rather live your last days 
you know, with your family preparing for your death? Or would you rather spend your last days on a, on a trial drug or, or something of that nature? And excuse me, (laughs) you know, something else that I'm also think about a lot is this uh, idea of CPR. In a lot of these TV dramas we see today, we see a doctor, you know, pushing away on a patient and uh, saving their saving their life uh, with CPR. I don't know what the success rate would be in dramas, but I think it's <laughs> it's quite high. But in the real world, CPR doesn't really work that much, and and the reality is only ten to twenty percent of resuscitated patients survive to leave. And, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that CPR is bad uh, for patients who rightly need it. Uh, you know, if, if your knee is going bad, for instance, uh, and you're getting surgery on your knee and, and your heart fails during the surgery, you know, I'm all for that, of course, you know, but reviving someone who dies comes at a tremendous cost to the person's quality of life. Another story from this book that's talking about this the author's talking about how she's early in her career and she's, I believe, having to operate or having to work on someone who has severe diabetes. She can't walk. She has heart disease. She She's immobile. She has to walk around on a scooter to get around. And she suffered this heart attack and they, uh, this lady resuscitated her, you know, and she, she went back the next day and she said she wished she had let her die. And, and the doctor says, but you told me us, you wanted us to do everything we could to keep you alive. And this person responded by saying, yes, but I changed my mind after going through it. And this lady died only a few weeks later. So like we keep iterating, I'm not saying that, you know, medicine is bad, doctors are bad, whatever. But what I am saying is there's not a one size fits all approach to life. And I think we should be considering how to die in the best way possible, not to live as long as we can. So I think something that's really important about this and, and something that we often see is how religion plays an impact in death and dying and dying well specifically. Mr. Parsons, do you want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, I don't think that a person necessarily has to be religious to die well. I think there are a lot of ideas involved with religion that can help a person with the with that journey uh, into into death. But I don't necessarily think it's imperative. And this goes back to that idea of living a good life, living a, a life well. And so, you know, we, we can. I'll sort of talk about both of these in conjunction with each other. So like Andrew mentioned earlier in the episode, death is something that comes for us all. Like it's one of the few things that every single human being will share, right? Uh, You know, being born and dying is, is the the, kind of like the two things that every single human being will experience. So whether you're religious or whether you're not, you're going to die. And so if you want to look at it as sort of a outside of the lens of religion, dying is a, is a natural process. It is in the nature is built into the nature of things. It's built into the pattern of the universe. 
the the natural order of things is that things are constantly dying and things are constantly forming and, and, and becoming something else. The Stoics talk about this a lot, especially Marcus Aurelius, who is especially concerned with his own with his own life. Marcus Aurelius says this in his meditations, above all, that it accepts death in a cheerful spirit as nothing but the disillusion of the elements from which each living thing is composed. If it doesn't hurt the individual elements to change continually into another, why are people afraid of all of them changing and separating? It's a natural thing and nothing natural is evil. So you can, you know, you can look at death as a natural process and you know, there's this worry about fear of death and what's on the other side because we don't necessarily know. But the Stoics would say, although mo- many of the Stoics were religious, the Stoics would say that this is just a natural process and being involved in the natural process of existence is what we were made to do. And so there's no reason to fear death. In fact, we should celebrate that uh, that we have completed this process and that what we are will reform and become the materials that we are will reform and become something else. And so from death comes life. Some, something that I think also is important about religious communities is the community nature themselves. I mean, of, of course, I'm not specifically saying that people have to be religious to die. Well, of course not. But I do think there is something to say about the communities that exist with religions. At least the ones that I primarily think of are concerned or do spend a lot of time being concerned about life after death. So when we have these existential questions, no matter if we face them uh, whenever or if we face them at a specific time in our life or if we face them right before we're going to die, these communities that have existed for thousands of years often are good ways to think about dying well and, and living well too, to prepare for a good death. If we think of the Christian community, of course, you know, today is Easter places a big emphasis today on, on resurrection of, of the soul. And I don't, this is not a religious episode, of course. Uh, that's not the point of what I'm trying to say, but that's just an example of how, of, of a community who's thinking about about death a lot and they have for a very long time. Uh, so to sum up what I'm trying to claim here, what my contention is, <laughs> is that dying well does not only exist for a religious community. It doesn't, it's not directly tied to being religious. You can still live and die well, even if you're not religious or have no religious beliefs at all, you know. But I think that there, the fact that religious communities have existed for so long, focusing on the idea of living well to die well, is often helpful to think about the our final days. So, just wrapping this part of the episode up, connecting everything together. Going back to our central question, what does it mean to die well? We've explored this in kind of a few ways, but all of them come back to the idea of considering death, dying, and how to die well. It's important for us to face these questions whenever we can so we are not 
brought to our graves, still considering questions like, where will I go? What will I do? Where will I be? So when we're at the time of our death, we're not haunted by these questions that we we chose to ignore during our life. So to quote this book one last time, in failing to die well, we fail to live well. By avoiding questions of the meaning of death, we avoid questions of the meaning of life. By avoiding finitude, we ignore infinitude. Boy, that's good stuff. Can I answer your quote with uh, with one last quote if we are if we are wrapping <laughs> things up? Sure, go for it. Uh, a quote by Seneca. I think it I think it echoes uh, your quote and everything we've talked about. Well, it is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if we are all well invested. But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realize that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So it is. We are not given a short life, but we make it short. And we are not ill-supplied, but wasteful of it. Life is long if you know how to use it. Okay, everybody, thanks for stumbling through that topic with us. We know it's a sensitive topic. Uh, It is for us. And we humbly submit that as our entry into it, the topic of living well and dying well. So that means it is time to head on over to the court corner. Okay, everybody, welcome to the quote corner, a segment of the show where we review a philosophy quote on a scale of one to five stars here we go. Uh, today, the quote was mine to choose, and being that we were dealing with a heavy topic, I thought we would. Uh, I thought I'd, I'd choose a quote that was a little more lighthearted. Now, I'm going to preface this with: this quote was made in 1908, okay, by Josiah Royce in his book *The Philosophy of Loyalty*. Uh, so here it goes. This has to do with sports, especially college sports. It is the extravagant publicity of our intercollegiate sports, which is responsible for their principal evils. Leave wholesome youth to their natural life, not irritated and not aroused to unwise emotions by the exaggerated comments of the press and our athletic organizations would serve their proper function of training the muscles as well as the souls of our youth to loyalty. So there you go. Josiah Royce is is hammering away at at the institution of intercollegiate sports and how it's corrupting <laughs> the students. What do you think of that one, Andrew? That's funny. Hmm. How do I go about this? <laughs> you know, it, this guy sounds like a Platonist. Am, am, am oh, you're right. I no, he's an idealist. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can totally tell uh, this last little sentence. Uh, our organizations would serve their proper function of training the muscles as well as the souls. That's totally Plato. Uh, Plato says something like we have to train both our bodies, our physical bodies, as well as our souls to, to be good. Um, He wants to focus on that for the youth. So it just reminded me of that. I was talking to one of my friends yesterday uh, about he is an athlete at school. Rice isn't necessarily known for great athletics, but uh, still, his perspective matters, I think. And hey, you guys won that national championship in baseball a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. that is true. That is true. <laughs> That's true. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. I, who knows if we'll put this podcast. Didn't you guys, didn't your football team, you had a huge win this they year. They did. They did beat Marshall, who was a That's right. top 15 team, I believe, which was crazy. Yeah, Marshall was ranked. It's like the first time you guys beat a ranked team since. It's been 40 or 50 years. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Crazy. That's right. Rice Athletics, ladies and gentlemen, go buy your swag now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he was telling me how how hard it is to be a student and also be an athlete at the same time. I mean, those people who do collegiate sports at D1 schools, especially very time-consuming sports like football and baseball and volleyball and all of those, it's hard to to be a student athlete in, in those sports that take up a lot of time. And I'm not saying too much about this quote exactly, but I do see that it is... It is definitely a struggle, I, I would say, to train the muscles as well as the souls slash minds uh, of those players in a, in a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, you always hear things like these platitudes of, you know, the, the best coach is not a coach who's concerned about winning, but the best coach is the coach that's concerned about the development of uh, the character of his players. <laughs> It, the thing that strikes me about this quote that's that's just so interesting is that uh, Mr. Royce here is is hammering the the influence of the press and the media. <laughs> this is in 1908. Uh, not irritated or aroused to unwise emotion by the exaggerated comments of the press. You know, I look at collegiate sports today and one of those post-game press conferences, <laughs> and that can't be anything compared to what it was in 1908. Yeah. You know, so you can only imagine how much greater, I guess, an influence or impact that would have on a person's ego. And especially at some of these, and of course, this is all tied up in litigation right now at the NCAA, uh, of like the usage of a, of a student's image in, in promotion and them not getting paid for it. You know, you can go to these basketball arenas, you know, these football stadiums, and there's these, you know, 30 foot tall posters of the quarterback or the basketball player or whatever. I mean, I can't, fa- you know, like they should do this at high schools. You know, I should walk in and see, you know, a 30 foot tall poster of myself teaching, I think. Yes. Uh, but I can't imagine, I can't imagine like how that influences a person, especially when you're, you're like 18 or 19. That just blows me away. So, I mean, if it was an issue back then, it's got to be an issue now. Oh, I'm sure it is an issue now. And then, you know, you just reminded me March Madness is, is about to be finished tomorrow. Last night was the UH Baylor game and maybe the UCLA Gonzaga game. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine uh, the pressure those, you know, their students, the pressure those students are facing not only for you know, their basketball teams, but also to, to keep up with their, their schoolwork at the same time. All right. This must be crazy. Well, okay. It's time for a, for an arbitrary rating here. Of this. Uh, let's see. I think you, I think you went first last time. So, so I'll go ahead and go first. Go for it. Yeah. I'm going to give this, <laughs> I'm going to give this quote, uh, three and a half stars because I have no reason. Actually, <laughs> when I said arbitrary, I really meant it. Actually, 
actually I find this quote really amusing. I just don't want to give it five stars for the sake of not giving it five stars. I'll give it, I'll give it a four star. This is a good insight into, uh, into society. And in fact, since it is so still, I think relevant to today, even though this quote was made over a hundred years ago, uh, that definitely bumps it up to the four stars. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I'll give it four stars too. As you, I was just thinking, you were reminding me about this when you just spoke, but I wonder if the reason that it's so hard for these student athletes to to do so well in school is to is because there's so much press attention around them. Oh yeah, which is exactly what he's saying. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll give it a four too. I think it is definitely more. Uh, it, it was uh, who's that guy Nostradamus? He's the Nostradamus of sports. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Oh, I like it. Yeah, you know, boy, media attention even even gets worse these days with social media because now oh these these athletes can say and post whatever they want to. Johnny which, Manziel. Uh, oh, good gravy. Well, we'll we'll definitely end the podcast on that. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. That's that's going to be it for today. You know, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We really, really appreciate it that you spend an hour of your time or however long this is going to be with us. It means a lot to both of us. Absolutely. We'd love it also if you would like to leave us a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when those new episodes drop. And of course, uh, please pass it along to your friends who, who need some uh, some timely advice. Well, hopefully not timely advice. Anyway, <laughs> on the art of dying well. Oh, no. <laughs> we'd, we'd really... <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to tell us what you think about the show, maybe this show specifically, have a question you would like for us to discuss or a philosophy quote you'd like for us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. It would make us very, very, very happy. Yeah, and you can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com where you can find many of the things uh, about the show, including our book lists, and the quotes we've featured, and other media that might be associated with the episode. Thank you so much for listening again. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.